And we welcome you to the Thursday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. You have already heard on this program about a really exciting event that is coming up on Friday the 13th, the Friday the 13th of October, Inspire Kenosha, sponsored by CABA, the Kenosha Area Business Alliance. And an array of very exciting guest speakers are going to be uh, coming to this leadership event uh, designed uh, with a lot of different potential leaders in mind. And you've already heard from uh, one of the guests a couple of days ago. Today, I'm so excited to be able to speak with Liz Wiseman. And when it comes to the whole field of leadership and how to foster more effective leadership, Liz Wiseman is certainly uh, one of the leading voices uh, in the country right now, and with several best-selling books to her credit, including one that I hold in my hands and that I'm excited to talk with her about called Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. And I've been uh, exploring the revised version of this book, which really uh, kind of turns on its head some of the presumptions that have long been made about what a good leader looks like or what good leadership looks like. And uh, I really appreciate the insights that she shares, which is not only based on her own insights, but also based on very careful research that she and her team uh, have done. Uh, The book is published by uh, Harper, a division of HarperCollins, again titled Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. And this is by Liz Wiseman, who comes to Kenosha for the uh, Kaba Leadership Event, Inspire Kenosha, on October 13th. Liz Wiseman, we welcome you to the morning show. Well, it's absolutely my pleasure to be with you. And I really thought you did a very nice job summing up what that book is about. And there's a lot to it. It's a thick book and a dense book, but I have really enjoyed it. And I have to say, too, I've read plenty of books uh, of this ilk, uh, but this is one of the best I've ever read, uh, in, in part because I think you... Uh, really offer a lot of tangible suggestions for someone who really wants to be a better leader and maybe revise their their notions of, of, of what good leadership is. I'm curious how much over the years your ideas about good and effective leadership have evolved. I mean, once upon a time, did you make uh, some of the assumptions that a lot of the rest of us do? Or really, almost from the start, have you had kind of uh, a, an exceptional insight into what makes all this work. Mm, no, I don't think I had an exceptional insight from the beginning. I think I had exceptional desperation from the beginning. I was thrown into a management job really early. I think I was 24 years old and a year out of college when I'm given a, like a, a big job, go start a university for Oracle. And you know, I remember thinking, are we lacking for adult supervision? Like, why are we asking the children to do this? You know, I was so Mm. young in my career. So I was just searching. And honestly, the guidance I got early in my career was terrible guidance. And there were two moments in particular that stuck with me. One was my boss said to me, you know, your job as a leader is to do everything that is new, important, and hard. That's the work you do and you give everything else to your team which sounded like great guidance but you can imagine six months later what this department looks like with me doing all the heavy lifting me getting all of the visibility and the credit for the 
the, you know, the exciting work and my team is sort of stuck turning a crank, hmm. doing the easy work. And I realized now my job is not to do all the hard stuff. It's to define the hard work and get that to the right people. So that was one of the things I had to unlearn. And there was another moment when I went to my first management training class and it was actually a class I had organized and we brought in a, a consultant and he said, your job as a leader is to see a better place and to take people to that better place. And then for effect, Gregory, he, and he was a large man. He jumped up on the table in front of this training class <laughs> and he kind of took his big hand and he like reached it out to the, the participants. And he said, your job as a leader is to extend the hand of greatness and take people to this better place. And I remember thinking, oh, that sounds like a terrible job. Like, I don't, it sounded like such a condescending view of leadership, but that's actually the predominant logic of managers when I started leading, which is, you know, you kind of see this better place. You've been there and you're going to have this vision and people will follow you there. And mm -hmm. This is not the reality of most leaders today. You know, the world is so complex that no one leader has all the answers. The world is changing so fast that we as leaders aren't really taking people to a known destination. Hmm. We're, in many ways, we're asking people to leave the comfort of their current destination under the cover of darkness and like flee and try to help their organizations learn to do new things they're essentially leading people to a destination they've never been to hmm. like how is a leader supposed to help nap their team navigate to this new world of ai right like based on what experience and so it's a you know it takes a very different way of thinking about leadership to navigate the current complexity and uncertainty that most leaders are are operating in and that scenario that you just described i mean at a just on first hearing it doesn't sound so bad it sounds like it makes a little bit of sense and then you more the, the more you think about it the, you realize that means your employees or your staff are essentially sheep and you're the shepherd i mean and what a what a denigrating way to to think of human beings especially human beings who are intelligent and gifted and have maybe experience that you don't have uh i mean it's interesting to think about something that at a glance is attractive and the more you think about it you realize it's a terrible model for being a leader right it's kind of the big leader little follower model of leadership and i don't know maybe the image i get from that i mean talk about sheep but i get the image of um snoopy do you remember the peanuts cartoon and snoopy is the beagle is marching down with all of the little woodstock birds following <laughs> behind him and it seems right at first glance but um, you know, in many ways, the, the staff who are close to the problems should know more and bring a lot more expertise than the leaders hmm. have. It's hard in this environment for any one leader, no matter how brilliant you are, to be able to be in a position to be doling out answers and corralling the sheep. Right. And of course, that's one of the central themes of your book is encouraging leaders to not think of themselves in those kind of exalted terms and uh and of course the whole point of being a multiplier versus a diminisher is to uh 
bring out of your your staff or your employees all that they have to bring to the table, which uh, in, in, in most cases is going to be a considerable amount. Before I forget, uh, this isn't a particularly smooth segue, but I'm afraid I'll forget to ask this. Uh, you dedicate this book, interestingly enough, not to uh, some past mentor or past college professor or, or somebody upon whom you've modeled your work as a leader. You dedicate this book to your children, and you, you name them, uh, your four children, and then you say, who have taught me to lead and shown me why being a multiplier matters. I would really love to know if you don't mind uh, talking about it for a moment, about why you dedicate the book in this way and what it is that your children have, uh, have in a sense, brought to the table in terms of teaching you something about leadership. Well, there's so many reasons. Uh, in short, I learned to lead as I was also learning how to be a decent parent. You know, that they're coexisting. I think I got thrown into my first leadership job, you know, a few years before I had my first child. But as I was trying to learn how to lead and trying to learn how to be a good parent, I noticed a few things. Number one, the jobs are really similar. Hmm. You know, some people might say there's a little bit of overlap, but I actually think it's almost complete overlap. And it's not that being a good leader in the workplace is about treating your staff, your employees as children. It's not that. It's that good leadership in the workplace looks exactly like good leadership in the home. Hmm. And bad leadership in the workplace looks a whole lot like bad leadership in the home, like micromanaging, hovering, controlling. And we know what happens when parents tell their kids what to do, provide all the answers because I say so, and control is it might work fine for a time, but eventually they're either going to rebel or they're going to end up weak, incapable adults. And I think that was the first reason. The second is, I feel like my children really taught me how to lead. And so much of what I was experiencing in my home was shaping how I saw the workplace. And in, in many ways, parenting is the ultimate leadership challenge because you do not get to hire your children. <laughs> And you don't get to fire them. And so some of the tools that we have in the workplace that enable manipulative leadership, like, well, you know, you can dangle a promotion or, you know, like you don't have that in your home. And so in many ways, like my kids would never put up with some of the things that people put up with from their bad bosses in the workplace. Like, and you know, you get a lot of feedback from your kids you know, when they decide you're not the boss of me or <laughs> no, actually. And and so I feel like I really have, have um, learned a lot about leadership, not just from my research, not just from my experience as an executive, but from just watching how people react to moments of wise parenting and moments of short-sighted or temperamental parenting. Hmm. We're speaking with Liz Wiseman, and we're going to start talking in, in greater detail about her book, Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. Liz Wiseman is one of the special guests who is coming to the Kaba event, Inspire Kenosha, on Friday, uh, October 13th.
your book is based on research that you and your team have done uh, in which you really studied the work of, of CEOs and other leaders in the world of industry. And I'm just curious, how does one research that sort of thing? I mean, are you coming in and observing and asking questions? And if so, what kind of questions are you asking? And I'm just kind of curious how one studies something like that, I mean, does research in order to uh, come up with some of the substantive uh, material that you do in your book. Well, my research is always done uh, slightly counterintuitively. Most leadership research is, well, a lot of it is uh, what I might call thoughts I had in the bathroom about leadership. You know, a lot of leadership books are based on kind of here's my philosophy of leadership. I wanted an evidence-based um, approach. And, you know, a lot of leadership books, they go out to supposedly great leaders and they say, what did you do? Like, what do you do as a leader? Well, most of us lack the awareness of the causality between what we do and the effect it has on other people. So I did not do that. I also did not decide who I thought was a good leader and who wasn't because I'm biased and subjective, uh, subjective in this way. What I did is I went out to dozens of successful professionals and I had a criteria for this. Uh, the most important is probably these were people who had success in their career so they didn't have an ax to grind. And I asked them to identify a leader who they were at their best around. They did their best thinking and their best work. They were sharp and hard problems got solved. Like, who were you working for when that is going on? Now, I came to call those leaders the multipliers in the study. And then I asked about another leader uh, around whom they held back. Like, hard problems weren't getting solved. Like, they were struggling. They were playing it safe. And I came to call those leaders diminishers. And then through the eyes of those leaders, I'm building a profile of what did these leaders do and how do they think and what assumptions did they seem to hold and, you know, kind of what's, what's their MO? How do they work? And I'm asking those successful professionals, how much of your intelligence and capability was that leader getting from you? Essentially, if a tree with a hundred apples represents all of their know-how and skills and talent and capability and insights. How much did that leader get based on the way they led? Hmm. Not based on how hard they're working. So in essence, what I'm doing is I'm figuring out who the effective leaders are through the eyes of the employees, their customers of their leadership. Hmm. And that's a, uh... That's probably key, and who better to be able to really uh, offer, in a sense, proper assessment of how effective leaders are. I, I want to make sure that, a, a, that a, an important point gets stated right off the bat, although I, the, I, I believe I read it very late in your book, but at one point you caution us to not think of multipliers and diminishers too much in binary terms. That is that I, I assume when you say that you mean person X is either this or either that. It sounds like you want us to, to realize that, that uh, it's possible, I suppose, to be both or maybe in some ways to be a multiplier and then other facets of your leadership. Maybe you're more of a diminisher or maybe in certain settings you maybe tilt one way or the other. It is more complicated, not 
a black and white situation. Tell us more about that com- complexity and, and why you think it's important and helpful to be aware of that. Yeah, so the book lays out these two different ways of thinking and leading, and it can seem binary because in my research, I'm asking people to identify a clear multiplier and a clear diminisher. But in reality, there's more texture to this. First of all, few of us are either an extreme multiplier or a diminisher that we tend to be somewhere in the middle, but it's not really like a milk toast approach to leadership. It's that certain situations tend to bring out the multiplier side of us and certain situations can tend to bring out the diminishing side. And so rather than go through the halls of a business and play a game of like duck, duck, goose, like like multiplier, multiplier, diminisher, multiplier, diminisher, 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 Mm. like rather than label people what you will get more out of the ideas if you ask yourself in this moment am i leading like a multiplier or am i leading like a diminisher what effect am i having on people in this moment we tend to move in and out of these modes of thinking and working most of us tend to have a base camp like okay i'm sort of mostly diminishing with some multiplier moments or I lead like this most of the time, but I have my diminishing moments. But the more important reason is that what I began to see in this research is that most of the diminishing that's happening in our workplaces is not coming from the tyrannical, bully, know-it-all, narcissist, kind of hot-headed, yelling kind of diminisher. Now, they exist, but most of it's coming from what I call the accidental diminisher, meaning the good person with really good intentions, trying to be a good manager, you know, people who, you know, read and eat up management books and people like me who write management Mm -hmm. books who have the best of intentions, but are doing things that can have a diminishing effect. And, and that's really where the opportunity is to change the work experience and change the, the output that people can offer in their jobs is to look at what am I doing that seems helpful, that seems supportive, that seems encouraging, that seems energizing, that seems hopeful, that's actually diminishing. Hmm. That's where it gets interesting. Right. And, and I, I call that the accidental diminisher. Sure. I like that. And, and it's one of uh, several instances I can think of in your book in which you kind of turn things on their head. I mean... We, we think of something that we thought was maybe a good thing, and we realize, ah, maybe it's not as good as we thought it was, or there are hidden costs or, or, or whatever. We'll, we'll uh, touch on a couple of them, I, ho- I hope. Um, back to this, this matter of, of multiplying versus diminishing the work of, 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 of those uh, on your staff or your employees and so on. Your book actually begins by pointing out the really serious problem that exists in far too many workplaces in which employees feel uh, an acute lack of engagement. And, uh, and you go on to say that, that the, the, the problem with that is far beyond just the fact that they might be dissatisfied and bored and unhappy and so on. I mean, that's, none of those are good things, but, but the real problem is the waste that it involves, the waste of 
of, of resources, I mean, of, of these employees who could be contributing so much and who are, are not. Typically, how do we get into that situation where we have all of these employees who are not nearly as engaged in their work as they need to be and should be? Well, I think it's really easy for managers to overlook this, to see busy employees and think, oh, people are full up. I can't give them more. They're they're mm. busy. They're working hard. Like they're overworked. They're complaining about being overworked. But how hard you're working is very different than how utilized your brain is. There are a lot of people who would say they're overworked, but they're underutilized. And you know, many companies work so hard to hire really smart people, but once they've got those smart, talented, capable people in the door, they stop asking, like, is this person smart and capable? They stop asking how, how much of that intelligence and capability is being used. What we found is that the diminishing leaders were getting less than half of people's available intelligence. 48% was the number that came out of that original research done very conservatively, done uh, blind without these terms, multipliers and diminishers. People are saying yeah, around that second kind of leader, yeah, they got about, you know, people would say 30% of what I had to offer. And what's interesting is often those managers had no clue that people were that underutilized. And, you know, it's funny, um, Greg, the, here's the thing I think I've learned studying oh, wow, some of the best leaders in the world, some of the worst is what I've learned is, is really not about the leader. I've learned a lot about the contributor who mm. from everything I can surmise in research in interviews and in anecdotes in mail that I get every single day from people talking about their bosses is people come to work desperately wanting to contribute. Nobody really, I can't find a lot of people who want a kickback gig. Now, they may act like that. They may <laughs> learn to act like that because once they've tried to contribute, tried to offer ideas, tried to take on things, and they've had their hands slapped or barriers put in the way, people learn to just settle. But people describe under-contributing giving a fraction of their capability as not a chill job, a good job. They describe it as frustrating, demoralizing, exhausting, draining, soul-sucking. And when you ask people what it's like working in a job where you are using, the way I like to think of it is like that feeling when I'm using every IQ point, <laughs> like the good Lord gave me, you know, like every natural gift I have, every ability to learn when I am like full on. People describe that experience as, okay, a little bit tiring, but totally exhilarating. Right. That's thrilling. That's rewarding. That's what people want from work. They don't want to turn a crank. They don't want the boss to do what was, what was the advice I was given? Everything new, hard, and important, and be left to just deal with the easy problems. People want the hard problems. Right. 
and and I'm, I'm glad you, uh, I remember reading that word more than once in your book, exhilarating, that it is an exhilarating experience when one feels like your body, soul, and mind, uh, every part of you is is being brought to bear. On, Almost cylinders. Yes, that sense of flow. Um, when you talk early in the book about what it means to be a multiplier and how, how a leader can be a multiplier, and you, you spell out five disciplines of the multiplier, the one that leapt out at me that I wanted to be sure to talk with you about is uh, the concept of creating intensity that requires best thinking. And I remember someplace else in the book, uh, you talk about uh, tension versus intensity and how one is tends to be quite counterproductive and the other, I guess, productive. And uh, I think this, this uh, discipline of, of, of being a multiplier speaks to that as well. Uh, talk for a moment about what it means to create the right kind of intensity in the workplace and this notion of how that would in the in among other things draw especially good thinking uh from employees oh yeah I, this is one of my favorites as well and you know the difference here is that the diminishing leader tends to create a tense environment and you know it's in some ways it's like they're putting excess pressure on people like I'm going to create this tense environment and like somehow I'm going to squeeze out of people their best thinking. Almost like maybe we've taken the diamond, the, you know, pressure on coal and, you know, <laughs> like somehow it's going to create something brilliant. But people's best thinking can't be demanded. It, it can only be invited. Like people's best work is given voluntarily. It's not like squeezed from us. It's like somehow... Um, a, a table is set where then we can bring this offering to the mm. table. And it's the difference between a tense environment and an intense environment, which does involve a little bit of pressure, but it feels very differently. Now, um, I think my favorite descriptions of this comes from a, a, a founder CEO of Bloom Energy, uh, K.R. Schreeder. And, you know, what he said um, is like he, and people who work for him said, yeah, he creates this kind of intense environment, but it's not tense. It's not stressful. And I love the way he explained it. He, he um, compared, well, he asked me if I was familiar with the story of William Tell. Now, mm. most people might be familiar with this, but this is a, a legendary uh, Swiss archer who had to kind of prove his mettle and sort of escape the dungeon by uh, taking on this challenge. It was given to him by the Austrian overlord who had taken over this village. And apparently, you know, William Tell didn't show proper obeisance to this overlord. And so the overlord gave him this kind of cruel trick that he would let him go if he could shoot the apple off his son's head. And so, you know, as you imagine this, this archer with his crossbow kind of taking the shot of his life, you know, and he's got his young son there who's now got the apple on his head. And what KR said to me, he said, in this scenario, you know, um, William Tell feels pressure, but his son feels stress. Mm. And I love this metaphor because the difference fundamentally is about control. You know, and it's not even at what's at stake. I mean, and maybe the 
the, the stakes are higher for the son, but you know, that would, for any good parent, the stakes would be as high for the parent, but it's like one of the two of them is in control of the performance. The other one is just a victim. Like I just got an apple on my head, hoping dad is a, as good of a shot as everyone thinks he is. And, and here's where this shows up. Like Kiara said in my um, company, you know, it's really innovative green technology um, that basically, well, I won't try to explain the technology, but they had to pull together like 50 different technologies to create this, you know, clean energy um, box. And, and what he said is in the work we do, people can't control the outcomes of the experiment. We are pushing and testing the science. He said, but what people can control is did they run the experiment? And he said, I never hold people accountable for the results of our studies and our experiments, but I absolutely hold them accountable for running those studies and keeping us on track. So what he's doing is he's, you know, giving people sort of like the challenge and the pressure to do the work, but not holding them accountable for things outside of their control, which mm. creates an environment that's intense. Like what will we find? What will we learn from this? And can we combine this and that? But it doesn't create this stress of I'm being held accountable for things that I can't possibly control. And I think that's one of the differences between tense and intense. Mm, I like that. Another thing I wanted to be sure to talk with you about is maybe my favorite example of how you take something and turn it on its head, something that we blithely assume, oh, yes, all good leaders are this. And one of them is this notion of a good leader is a decision maker. And uh, in, in the fifth chapter of your book, you, uh, you set up this tension between the decision maker versus the debate maker. And when we look at that, I think the average person would say, well, I'm pretty sure I, I would want my boss to be a decision maker uh, versus a debate maker. I mean, and but then we read this chapter and we realize that there is no question, but that uh, the more effective model for leadership is the debate maker who really opens up avenues of communication and contribution and, and, and so on versus making decisions from on high and leaving everybody else, in a sense, in the dark. I, I just love that idea. And I'm just curious if that dawned on you in an instant or slowly but surely have you come to realize uh, that, that or come to that insight about decision-making versus debate-making? Hmm. Well, it did not dawn on me. And none of the ideas in the book just came to me. It was all a result of the research and doing these interviews and hearing how people describe their multiplier leaders. Hmm. And they described leaders uh, like Lutziab is one of my favorite in this chapter, you know, leaders who, you know, when the decisions are small, like, you know, how are we going to configure the office or, you know, it's like, they either are just a dictator and just say, hey, this is how we're doing it and let's move on. Or they delegate those, maybe they ignore those. So they're not always turning to debate. It's not like they're constantly collaborative because that actually slows people down. Hmm. It's they recognize the decisions that are vital. Like this is not just a run of the mill decision. This is the kind of decision we're gonna live with for a lot of hmm. years. This is a high stakes decision. This is a decision if we get it wrong, like things will suffer. 
And those are the ones that they stop, they pause, and instead of ignoring it or just making the decision, which could lead to a good decision, but a decision that leaves other people in the dark. Like, well, wait a minute, what was Liz thinking? Did we, did she discuss this? Has she, like, is anyone concerned about this? It's that <laughs> kind of debate that happens at the water cooler. They don't do that. What they do is they're like, this is a decision that requires many minds. They don't turn it over to like the whole team, like, okay, we're just gonna vote on this. It's a big democracy. What they do is they play the role of debate maker and they determine the decision that needs to be made. They bring people together, not for an instant debate, but they bring people together to say, you know, this is a decision we need to make. Here's why it's important. Here's what's at stake. Here is the choice we have to make. Are we gonna do A or B? or yes or no, they frame that and then they dismiss people to go and do their homework and come back. Like they might say, you know what, a week from now we're gonna regather and I want you to come into this debate, here's the question and the options, with a point of view and with evidence. So they don't just like spring a debate on people like, okay, what should we do? That doesn't lead to good decisions. They let people go and develop their independent point of view, bring it to the team, and then they lead their team in a debate that's both hard-hitting but kind of exciting. And it's the kind of debate that doesn't tear down a team. It actually builds up a team and builds collective will for a point of view. And Lutz is one of my favorite um, because he does this thing in his debates that just make it so interesting like he asked people to come in and so you know let's say Sunir is arguing for this and you know Sarah is arguing against it and you know Jamal is coming in with this point of view and right when people are starting to settle into positions and you know being a little entrenched he does the switch mm. and what he says is Sunir you've been arguing for this Sarah you've been arguing against it Sarah I want you to argue for it Sunir you argued against it or, you know, Jamal, you've been looking at this from an engineering point of view. Michael, you've been looking at it from a marketing point of view. Switch hats. And what it does is it, it eliminates the winners and losers mm. in a debate. And the only thing that wins is the, like the final winning idea. Right. The sound decision. That's one of the things you say is that uh, a multiplier welcomes debate, but not just for the sake of debate but for the sake of arriving at a sound decision. And I, I love that idea too, because it's not even necessarily the best decision or the perfect decision or whatever, but a sound decision. I think that adjective is absolutely perfect. And you know, Gregory, isn't it true that in so many cases, the best decision is not the best decision. It's the one that everyone understands hmm. and can get behind and can execute. You know, there aren't that many situations where like there is only one good answer. It's mostly what can you get your head around and what can you do quickly and, um, you know, harmoniously. That mm. usually tends to be the best strategy and best sure. path forward. I know also when you talk in this chapter about conducting this kind of workplace debate, uh, I know that it, at least one point in, 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 in the, in the, in the uh, process you, you suggest that the leader needs to re-clarify 
the decision-making process in terms of how this is going to work, where we are right now, where we're going to kind of go from here. And I love that idea that, that there is something to be said for offering a framework, some sort of sense of, of where we need this and want this to go. Uh, but that is different than sort of riding shotgun and pressing the point and compressing the, the, the debate into something that's not a debate at all. Um, I, I, I really appreciate the, the way in which you, you, you frame that for us. Well, that, that's one that I might have learned at home. <laughs> mm. That's one where, you know, like when my, our children, we have four children, got to the age where they would have an opinion about where we might want to go on family vacation. And we would ask them, like, you know, what do you think? And I remember having to clarify, like, oh, that doesn't mean that this is like everyone has a vote in this. In the end, mom and dad are going to make the decision, but we want everyone to come in. In fact, I think I, I remember having one of these debates where our kids were like, hey, why aren't, why aren't we want to go to Europe? Why aren't we going to Europe? Why do we always go, you know, into this like more of the developing world and this and that? I'm like, okay, come in, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to come in prepared with like, what does an ice cream cone cost? in these countries that you want to go to you know how much does a fanta orange soda drink cost and what about this and i remember when they came in and said oh wow like if we went to italy we would have a lot fewer ice cream cones than if we had you know gone to maybe another country or central america where we had been going and they're like yeah no we're going where we can get a lot of ice cream cones <laughs> Like, yeah, once they had the evidence, the decision became clearer. Hmm. Wonderful. Do you have time for just a couple more questions? Absolutely. Uh, let me reintroduce you. I'm speaking with Liz Wiseman, the uh, author of several best-selling books, including Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. Uh, the book has been uh, fairly recently updated and revised. Liz Wiseman is one of the special guests coming to the Kaba inspired event called a sponsored event called Inspire Kenosha on Friday, October 13th. I really appreciate that you expand upon the uh, often thrown around term genius in your book. <laughs> and you call yourself at one point a genius watcher, the way some people are bird watchers or whale watchers. You're a genius watcher. You've obviously given a lot of thought to what it means uh, to be a genius and or to demonstrate genius. And one of your, uh, I think, especially helpful bits of advice in the chapter called the talent magnet. I mean, that's another way in which a boss can be a, uh, a multiplier is the importance of appreciating all types of genius. And that, of course, really shakes us loose of a kind of a simplistic notion of, of what that term really means. Uh, explain the importance of having a wider sense of what genius is, and especially of then appreciating all those different kinds of genius that one might have uh, amongst your staff? Well, I think it's moving off of this notion that genius is rare, and geniuses are rare, mm. and that there are certain people with high IQs that are geniuses. You know, we it conjures up, you know, Albert Einstein or you know, Marie Curie or like these people who just are clear geniuses. And very and, different from the rest of us. 
Yeah, and different, like inaccessible to us. But it's also not this wide notion of like, everyone's a genius. I I think we have actually a lot of evidence that not everyone is a genius in the world. (laughs) There's, There's lots of examples where it's like, okay, that was not a smart thing to do. So it's not like, okay, now everyone's a genius. Everyone gets the genius trophy. It's recognizing that while not everyone is a genius, everybody has a genius. Everyone has something that they're really good at, that their mind does uniquely. And, you know, I call it native genius or natural genius. And it's what, and we all have at least one thing that we are like naturally brilliant at. And it's what our mind tends to do easily Hmm. and freely. It's what our mind is built to do. And everyone has genius that they can bring to the table and what a good manager would do is not just decide okay who are the like really smart people on my team and that's my inner circle i'm going to give them all the hard work but it's saying what is the genius that each person brings to the team and how do i find it how do we talk about it so openly that everyone knows kind of like this thing it's like everybody knows Gregory's brilliant at this everyone knows Liz is great at that you know and then we're back to like Sarah and Sunir and Jamal like everyone brings something and like our job as a leader and really our job in teams is to figure out how to deploy people's genius against the biggest hardest problems because when we get to work in the area of our genius we tend to do really great work work flows easily you mentioned kind of a flow state and um it's deeply satisfying and we tend to do it easily and brilliantly and it's not to say that a manager is obligated to only give people work that fits their unique genius that's kind of ridiculous like we all have work we just have to do but the more we can acknowledge this this natural genius um and that it's not really a function of our job, it's just what our minds do, then it can be used against some of the biggest interesting problems that the team has. Absolutely. And that's a lot of fun. Right. And of course, you are really uh, shaking us loose of the notion that that a good boss is the only genius in the room. And uh, I mean, that that is a, a terrible mistake for, for any leader to make, to assume that they have cornered the market on, uh, on intelligence and, and insight uh, especially if you uh, have employees that have all kinds of gifts to bear. I, it reminds me of the wonderful quote from uh, the pop star Bono at the top of, of chapter one. Do uh, you mind if I read it? Because I have it right in front of me, un- unless you have it and want to read it. Well, I, I, I have it in my head, so I, 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 but I would love to have you read it. But if I could provide just a little context to it, it's this is something Bono said when he was asked to describe George Clooney Hmm. for Time Magazine. Time Magazine was doing a profile on George Clooney and they're like, Bono, who is George Clooney? And Bono, like trying to describe who the essence of Clooney is and why people tend to do great work around him and love working with him, Hmm. is he compared him to these two British prime ministers. So, wow. And I had no idea that was the context. I'm so glad you said that. So, so this is then what, what Bono says. It has been said that after meeting with the great British Prime Minister William Ewart Gladstone, 
you left feeling he was the smartest person in the world. But after meeting with his rival, Benjamin Disraeli, you left thinking you were the smartest person. And the idea, of course, is that the truly great leader uh, underscores the genius in others, not in himself or herself. Absolutely. And I also want to be clear, it's, you know, being a multiplier is not around being the dummy of the team. It's not an approach to leadership, which is like, well, golly shucks, I don't know what we should do. What do you all think? You know, it's not playing stupid. The best leaders are not just geniuses, they're genius makers, but they bring all of their own intelligence to bear in a way that um, asks a good question, Hmm. knows the right challenge, spots the genius in others, and orchestrates this in a way that brings out the genius in people around them. So it's a smart way of leading. Hmm. I love that. Here's the last question. We just have a a minute or two. Uh, You say at one point in the book, that you advise people to read this book on several different levels. Uh, What do you mean by that? Well, I'm trying to remember what (laughs) I meant by that. (laughs) Um, You know, I think the easiest way to read the book is to read it as a critique of other leaders. Oh, yeah, that's right. That boss I had was such a diminisher. No wonder I hated my job so much. You know, it was them. But, you know, on a deeper level, it's to read it to see not just the multiplier in us, but the diminisher. You know, I, I used to think there were multipliers and diminishers, and I've really come to see that I think within all leaders lurks mm. a diminisher just waiting to get out. And and to see, like, what is am I doing? And then you know, what am I doing with the best of intent that's having a diminishing effect? And maybe perhaps the deepest level to read the book is not just um, how do I be more of a multiplier, but how do I create an environment where other people can lead this way? How do I create an entire organization where people are at their best? That is what it's all about. And of course, uh, all kinds of people will be coming to this event on October 13th to uh, hear more of what you have to say on this and other related topics of effective leadership. Uh, The Inspire Kenosha event is coming up on Friday, October 13th, uh, sponsored by CABA, the Kenosha Area Business Alliance. And uh, you can go to CABA's website for more information. And uh, if you register and use code WGTD2023, you will get a break on the cost for the registration. Again, with code WGTD2023, an exclusive offer to WGTD listeners uh, uh, for this event. And the book we've been talking about, Multipliers, Revised and Updated, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter, published by Harper Business, an imprint of HarperCollins, the author, Liz Wiseman. Liz Wiseman, it's been a great pleasure both to explore your fascinating book and to talk with you about it today on The Morning Show. My thanks to you and best wishes. Well, it's my pleasure, and I look forward to coming out to Kenosha.